the time when wargamers played with chainmail and the rise of the wizards of the coast, there was an age of gamers. And unto this, Gygax, destined to bear the crown jewel of TSR upon a troubled brow, to show you all how to roll for initiative. Issue number 61 of the Roll for Initiative podcast. I'm DM Vince, along with DM Nick. Hey! And producer Matt. Hello! Should we start calling you DM Matt now? or uh, Is there some sort, of, some sort of DM training wheels or something? I don't know. We can call you GM Matt. G- oh, wow. There we go. So, uh, okay, so... Pretty much, uh, we're at issue number 61, volume 261, as I, I noticed how Matt put it up nicely for us. Thank you, Matt. You're and uh, the website, we updated the website. New graphic, new little, little layout change, a couple graphics here and there, nice coloring. It's pretty. Yeah. Just a little more appealing to the eye, not, not so cluttered so people could find things. Some people were complaining they couldn't click on things, so I uh, spruced it up a little to make it nice. Nice. Pretty, shiny. OSRgaming.org has a main website page to it now that just is a basic splash page and a couple pages to it explaining its purpose. So, Uh, Like usual, we do have a donate button on the website, and some people have donated, and thank you. Those people have been written to, and we we thank you for the donations. We appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, let's just jump right into the show. Nick, stars. Yeah. Stars. You said we have uh, two, right? Sky, and they're on iTunes. Nick. What? We got a couple of reviews. Yes. Both good, uh, I hope. Let me read this first one. Okay. And it's a five-star review Woo-hoo. from Cheryl Biller. Well, and who, she what, says... Wait, wait who? Finally! What? From who? Cheryl Biller. Oh. And she says, finally, Jason is gone. <laughs> She gives it five stars and says, finally, Jason is gone. Yes. Nice. She says, uh, I love the show much and stopped listening to it because how I was treated by Jason, the sidekick to Nick and Vince. He was not kicked off the show for his childless harsh reactions, so I decided to stop listening. Recently, I heard from some gaming friends that Jason was not around anymore. I started listening again. Then I heard him back, but only to announce he was leaving because it was too much work to s- sit there and make things up. Okay. <laughs> Volume 2, as you named Issue 60, seemed like a fresh new start with a clean slate. I even like the new logo you guys have. Keep up the good work and hope you find a person for the third spot. I like hearing Matt on the show. You use him. One vote for Matt. <laughs> Matt, you just got voted in, apparently, by Cheryl. Yeah. All right. Um... Our next review is from Crystal Lattice. It's a five-star review and says, bring back memories, brings back memories. Oh. This is the first podcast I've listened to, and I'm not disappointed. I haven't played AD&D since the early 80s, but I remember much of what is discussed on this show. I've acquired many electronic versions of D&D material over the years. This is... And this podcast has prompted me to start looking through it again. Additionally, I'm using AD&D as a basis for my PhD dissertation. 
and I'm learning some valuable ideas from the topics discussed on the podcast. Great job and keep it up. Well, thank you, Crystal Lattice. That's awesome, doing your Ph.D. dissertation on D&D. I think she wrote in a long time ago on an email and said something similar to that. Yeah, I thought somebody mentioned that, but yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, you know, we actually uh, talked about a couple of books that might help for her dissertation, or is her? I think it was a her, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, about about their dissertation. So, yeah, I thought we t- discussed something of that nature. But uh, thank you for the reviews, everyone, and uh, don't forget we we read them all, you know, good or bad. So just you know, head over to iTunes. Vote us any way you can, and, uh, yeah, we'll read them out loud, and we appreciate all the input that we get. Cool. And uh, that's all the stars we have for this week, so let's head into some sage advice. Master! Master! They're at the gates again! Master! It looks like another band of adventurers! Adventurers again? Always the same. Coming to me for sage advice. Sage advice this week. We actually have one email uh, this week. Uh, no voicemails, unfortunately. But uh, one email. Nick, you might be able to answer this one because it has to do with N1 and Cthulhu. So Sweet. <laughs> uh, Luke writes in and he says, Hey, guys, love the show. I want to run N1 against the Cult of the Reptile God. And I want mm-hmm. to put a Cthulhu spin on it. How should I make my players roll ability checks? For example, intelligence for observation or idea or no. What and how many dice for each check? Also, how should I express, I'm sorry, how should I award experience points for a good investigation? Thanks. Oh, interesting. Um, well, my suggestions, now I'm familiar with both the system for Call of Cthulhu and, you know, for AD&D, obviously. Um, you could really port over that stuff from Call of Cthulhu because it's based off the basic role-playing system based off of BRP mm-hmm. and bring it right over. In fact, if I remember my history correctly with the game, because it's actually based off of you know some house rules of AD&D and D&D, which became RuneQuest and then Call of Cthulhu and whatnot, because I believe your idea role is your intelligence times five. Mm-hmm. That's your ideal role, and your knowledge role is a similar thing, multiplied uh, a stat multiplied by a number, and that's your percentage role for that. So you could really port that right on over hmm. to, if you want to use it for the adventure, um, and then use those roles like idea and knowledge to let's see if they figure stuff out. And as far as you know, awarding experience points for like investigating. I think that's really up to the DM's discretion. I mean, there's no experience point rewards expressed in the module for figuring things out, but, I mean, you can kind of base that off, like, you know, role-playing awards if you do those sorts of things. So, you know, I guess just do whatever you think is reasonable as far as experience points. Maybe when they figure out who's behind uh, the... uh, Spoiler spoiler alert. Who's really behind the Temple of Marika in town? You know, maybe you can award like uh, I don't know, two hundred experience points for finding out that knowledge. You know, just throwing a figure out there. I think that's a reasonable idea. Just a suggestion. I would have given but, fifty. Yeah. Okay. 
whatever. Yeah, like I said, uh, it's up to the DM, so. Yeah, it's like like I said, whatever the DM's discretion is on that. So, now, as far as, like, having monsters, uh, if you want to change up some of them, I think that could be easily done. Uh, if you're lucky enough to come up with the uh, copy of Deities and Demigods with the Cthulhu Mythos in them, well, there you go. Good luck. Easily changed for that. Um, if not, I'm sure you can find some place on the web that has them, but enough said on that. But <laughs> I like Against the Cult of the Reptile God, one of the great starting adventures. I believe there's a Blackstone's Vault upon that. Oh, yeah, was, that Blackstone guy, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. guy who hasn't shown up in a while. Actually, he did a review last episode. Oh, that's true. That's true. It's about time he got off his butt and started working. You know, he's busy up there in that castle. Well, we pay him in a lot of Electrum, so. Yeah, Electrum pieces. (laughs) But, yeah, thanks. I don't know if there's any other suggestions from you guys who are familiar with the adventure. Matt? Uh, What would you, how would you think about maybe integrating, like, the insanity rules as you, from Cthulhu? Well, you know, that's a really good thought. I've actually worked something out for that. I was considering for uh, they have a game world. I was going to do a Hyborian Age campaign. Mm-hmm. And one of the stats I was going to come up with was Sanity. And uh, Sanity was going to be based off of, like, your wisdom times five. And that would be your starting Sanity. And... Wisdom times five. So if we got say yeah. we got like a ten, we'd have fifty. Fifty percent uh, sanity. Right. Huh. Those are your sanity yeah. points. Um, and each horrific event would drop you down by what? X amount of dice. Uh, right. It yeah, all depends. On, yeah. yeah. I I I don't have it in front of me. I did work something out for that. What comes to mind is I worked out like losing sanity for specific types of spells. Um, actually, for any spells, you a uh, person manipulating the the uh, magical nature of the universe or whatever using non-Euclidean geometry and all that good stuff. These uh, <laughs> Lovecraftian type ideas. Every level of a spell is equivalent to a point of sanity. So if you cast a third level spell, you lose three points of sanity. Don't. Yeah. The the only difference I made is if it's like a summoning spell, you lose twice that amount. So like a monster summoning spell, mm-hmm. it would be double the amount of the monster summoning spell for that level. I kind of worked out something. That was something I was kind of like coming up with like that. So I don't know how it would work. I never used it, but it was just an idea. Yeah, because you need something involving the character's sanity to really have that Cthulhu feel. Because really, what's Cthulhu without people going insane? Exactly. That's like the cornerstone of that game. So. Exactly. It's not if you'll go insane, it's when. It's when. <laughs> How long before? It's, yeah, true. So, yeah. All right, yeah, I would probably do the same thing. Um, as far as ability checks, I'd probably just go for the standard 3d6 under the number. Hmm. It's usually how I've done checks. Yeah, you could do that way, or a yeah. D20 roll or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you have any sage advice you need advice for, rfistaff at gmail.com, and uh, we'll head into Table Manners. 
Yeah, I remember back in the day, a fella knew how to judge a fireball on the fly and how far the cleric could push the undead he turned. I tell you, with all these min-maxers and munchkins, metagame and power game, there's something missing that I'm here to learn you. Now sit down and crack your book while I commence to teach you some. Table manners. And we are now in table manners, where we are continuing discussing some of the lesser used books of the AD&D realm. And this time it's the Dungeoneer's Survival Guide. And we're actually going to go to page 23 and talk about the non-weapon proficiencies. I've already heard a bunch of people out there probably going to go, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. I think there's some potential here. Uh, We've already kind of touched on it uh, back in issue 58 when we talked about secondary skills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The uh, the non-weapon proficiencies are basically rules to adjudicate the secondary skills and flesh them out more. So instead of... The tonight is adjudicate. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. <laughs> well, yes, we, we need an RFI word of the day. Adjudicate. Yes. Matt, get on that bumper. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> go but, on. I'm sorry. Uh, but anyways, uh, in the the way it works, it's they have the various uh, uh, non-proficiencies, and they've assigned each a ability score, and it's comes down to a simple ability score check against that to determine whether or not uh, you succeed at the task. I mean, and it, this goes a little farther, though, than the secondary skills, which are more of, like, your profession-based skills. Right. The, you also get into construction of weapons. You get into, like, blind fighting or fungus identification. <laughs> yes. Uh, slow respiration, sound analysis. So, it's it's kind of reminiscent of skills from like additions that we won't go into, but not quite to that level. It's just more of oh, your yes. character is better than your average Joe at doing this. So you get an ability check. This is yeah. this book was made after Gary was gone, obviously. Yeah, it came out in eighty six, I believe. Yeah, the year after he yeah. was gone, and written by Doug Niles. And you can see this is this is as Jason used to say, the Twilight. Or Nick, did you always say the Twilight of twenty? Yeah, this was like on the twilight years of of first edition. And you could see where they were heading with second edition. They were just trying things out in these odd books, like Dungeons & Dragons Survival Guide. And every time I see not one proficiencies, I think of second edition, or just to annoy paper cut on the forums, the edition that shall not be acknowledged, as I call it. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, uh, I don't really like non-weapon proficiencies like this. Just... I like adjudicating it as a DM myself, but I guess this puts it in the hands of just the dice and gives the players that, that chance to see what's going on. That's what I get about it. Um, I, I do like these for the simple fact that it's for (gasps) one, it's a simple system. Blasphemy. Well, you know what? It's first edition. It's still, it's, I would still use these if I was going to be running a first edition game again. So you use these all the time? Uh, if I was running a first edition game, I probably would. The reason being is, one, the simplicity of the system, and also there isn't that many proficiencies. There's not there's not a whole lot of, uh, of proficiencies that go over here. There's 
what, 30 of them total? Yeah, but it also encourages you to make your own, so. Well, sure. But I, I think there's enough here that, you know, if you want to adjudicate <laughs> yeah. a particular situation. Ah! Sorry. Are we doing the Pee Wee Herman scream every time we do that? <laughs> we, we need a bird to drop down from the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Nick. But, well, no, it's, I don't mind these because there really isn't a whole lot here that, you know, they, they cover – they're pretty broad as, as far as what they do. They're not super specific skills, you know, so you don't have like a, a long list of skills here. Um, and mm. you don't earn that many every level. Uh, for example, a fighter only earns – a non-weapon proficiency the same rate as he does his weapon ones one every three levels so it's not that many and it's a simple d20 roll plus any sort of modifiers either make it better or worse right yeah which they all have fixed modifiers to begin with which is something i thought was a little strange right yeah it's like some will have die roll modifier of zero and others uh, like armor has a minus two just for doing the task, you're minus two to your roll, which I'm just, I, I'm not quite sure about that as to why they even exist. And some of these require more than one non weapon proficiency slot. Mm-hmm. Some of them require two. Yeah, some of them require two. Some of them require more, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, a so few that require three. I think this is just another tool to have in your. In your game, if you so choose to want it, no one says that you have to use these. I, I, if you like to have the dice kind of determine everything, I mean, or at least some situations, and you want to have certain uh, proficiencies that can help with that, you know, why not use it? But I think this is something that. If you're going to use them, it would have to be the very beginning of a campaign. It's not, I don't think this is something that you can add, you know, add, you know, midstream into a, a campaign, an ongoing adventure. No, no, you know? no. This would be something that you guys, uh, as a group, would have to decide upon uh, to use. And I think there's even more of these in the Wilderness Survival Guide. Yes. Yes. So, and they have them so. in the Orientals and uh, everything yes. else. So there is a plethora. Plethora. That's another word of the day, huh? Plethora. Plethora is the word. Uh, I don't know. This is not what I envisioned first edition being. This is what I envisioned second edition being. So as the only grognard left in the group now, apparently, as people whoa, are saying. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, it's no, still no, no, first no. edition, though. No, it's yeah. not first edition. This is 1.5. Oh, okay. Which actually is kind of what I started with, considering I was using a second edition player's handbook with a first edition DM guide when I started playing. So that's a, a lot, lot of conf- people did that. That's a little confusing. Yeah. A lot of people, yeah, but you know what? The compatibility between the two was not nearly as bad as later editions. Yeah. So, but yeah. a lot of people did that. A lot of people mixed and matched when the second edition came out. So, oh, I didn't mix and match. Well, well, I had my <laughs> DMG Fiend Folio Demigods and Deities in a Monster Manual 2 given to me by my sixth grade teacher. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, she, I had, she had found out that I played D&D, and she, uh, she 
her son used to play and left his books at the house, so he let she let me borrow his first edition DM guide, but she wouldn't let me keep it, so I gave that back. But then at a yard sale, she said she found some books really cheap, and she bought them for me and gave them to me. So I'm like, hmm. score from the teacher. Yes. Interesting. So overall, use them or, or lose them. I'm going to vote lose them because I don't like them. It's not first edition for me. Matt, what do you think? I I have no problems using them. I can go either way. Um, but I, I think for peop, some players need to have spelled out what their character knows, what their character doesn't know. For those types of players, this I think is useful. Yeah, I agree. I either I could go either way on this. And I, yeah, actually, you brought up a really good point, Matt. That you know, some people, if they're especially if they're not familiar with, you know, role playing in general, sometimes they need to have the stuff laid out in front of them, at least to give them some sort of idea of what they can and cannot do. That that's a good way of doing it. Um, but like I said, if you would use these rules, these non-weapon proficiencies rules, it would have to be at the beginning of the campaign that everybody agreed upon. Well, or at least the DM said, we're using this and too bad. Well, then he's just being a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> well, you that's have, why he, you have no why choice. You, well, no. The DM says, you're gonna, we're using this book like and you can use these skills. You know, what are you going to do? Not play? Find another... Yeah, find another group to play with. You tell that person in that area that has one group, leave his group. Well, uh-huh. that's what I thought. <laughs> no, that, well, that's just not being a very fair DM. I think that's just being ruthless. Not really, I mean, usually DM will say we're playing this game tonight. And these are the following books we can use. Well, I mean, what's ruthless about that? Well, no, it's just that you don't think the players have a say-so? No, if I'm running a game and I'm taking the time to run it, I'm going to tell you what books you can use in my game. Okay. You don't think that's right? Well, no, I, I don't have a problem with it, but I, I just think that you know there would have to be some agree- agreement upon it. It's If you don't define what stuff you can use in your campaign... As a DM, well, I could that's and that's what this is all about. You can say if you want to use these or not, right? If you don't define it, and you get people pulling books out of nowhere saying, "I want to be a half werewolf vampire mummy." Well, okay. yes, and I've had that as an wow. example. I've <laughs> yeah. had that as an example. So, as an example, no, I understand that you have to have some definitive rules, or at least you know what you want to use in a campaign. I was just making the suggestion that the you know this might be one of those things you could use. I mean Yeah, you could use it, but you know. Let's go into the next segment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh man, what the heck is that? Understand you fool, I have a spell that will work here. What do you mean I can't hit with that? Oh, right, fine. Show it to me in the book. Welcome to Game Mechanics. 
game mechanics. We have something called speeding play, which I never understood why they wrote it that way. When it should be speeding up play would be the proper way to write it, wouldn't you think, guys? Yeah, there needs to be... Uh, yeah, I guess yeah. so. They talk about pacing inside of a game, and they talk about... They give you tips how to... Uh, if you flip to page 61 in the uh, yeah. uh, Dungeon Survival Guide, it tells, tells you different tips. It's just a page-long paragraph, uh, about a page and a half. No, not even a page. It tells you different ways how to speed up play during the game. It's mostly for players and DMs uh, groups that are having, are not used to playing with each other, but why did they need to write these out? I mean, we knew this already. Yeah, I was yeah. reading this too, and I was like... I'm already familiar with this. We kind of, I think most gaming groups kind of figure this out into this natural way of doing things, you know? For example, picking a caller at the table to figure out where the group's going instead of the DM sitting there watching people argue. Picking someone that's going to roll the dice each time for the group. You don't really, you know, that's just common mm. knowledge. I don't know yeah. why it was put in some Unless you have a bunch of antisocial people with no interpersonal skills at all, it's really not necessary. Yeah, and also yeah. There's a, a standard marching order. I Just about every time you play a game, I've never seen, not seen a person say, oh, where are we? Let's put ourselves on the board or whatever. Yeah, yeah pretty much everybody has a good idea of, like, I, I, think, I yeah. think one of the things that they're talking about here is... I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of a weird section. It's like, right. yeah, duh. I, yeah. I, I get it. Maybe maybe uh, for someone who's a novice, this is something that, that was written for. All right, then this should have been in the DMJ. Right. I agree. Yeah, because yeah, if you're buying this? the Dungeoneer Survival Guide, I beginner tips, I don't, don't really have a place. This would be more yeah. of... How to advance techniques for running a game as opposed to introductory interpersonal social skills. Yeah. Yeah. I've read this. I was reading this book over thinking about what we should write, uh, run over. Yeah. Talk about it during the show. And I was just like, speeding play. I'm like, I forgot about this section. I'm reading it. I'm like, why? (laughs) And, And if you look at the other topics covered near it, there's nothing even remotely close to it. It's, it sticks out Yeah, quite a bit. Fighting Everything effective, else. creating diversions. Actually, the whole um, section is called improving play, so maybe that's why it fell under there. Right. It, it just – one of these things is not like the other because yeah. everything else is more about uh, rules and how to handle different situations, whereas this is just how to handle your gaming group, I guess. Yeah, they have expedition planning, scouting and gathering information, duh. Types of expeditions, okay. Using beasts of burden. You can use mules to put stuff on, okay. You can use dogs. Watercrafts, fighting effectively. Uh, creative underground spell use. Ways to use the spells that you use above ground, underground. It, language of the Underdark. What, I don't see, I don't get the point of it. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah. It's a tiring. And it's in the player's <laughs> section of the book, not the DM section of the book. Which I do like, by the way, how it is blackened out for the DM section. Yeah. I thought that was a really cool idea that they did. Right. Yeah. So you know as a player, I, okay, I can't read, or these are the forbidden pages. Right. It's like if you look at the player's table of contents, it does not list what's in the DM section. It just says these pages are for the DM. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
But this speeding up play section, it's funny. I was reading through that. I'm like, ah, yes, my group does that. <laughs> There's like a standard mm-hmm. procedure when they go into the room and they, all they have to say to me is, we tossed the room. <laughs> yeah. Which it's- means they're searching the room for everything. They tossed the room. So it's like, okay. <laughs> I like on the back of the book, it says, for beginners, advanced players, and DMs, this book opens up a new, opens up grand new vistas in the realm of the Underdark. So maybe that's what their work purpose was? I don't know. Uh, there are sections of that that do help with that matter. I think that will be later in the show we'll be talking about that. Well, yeah, this this is very useful for the Underdark if you want to run an Underdark campaign, which is kind of cool in a way itself, but this is not a beginner book. <laughs> No. This no. is an advanced book. I mean, if, if the player's handbook was a beginner's book, this would be like two levels above that book. That's what mm-hmm. I'm thinking. Yeah. Wouldn't you think that? Yeah, I mean, this is really, I mean, some of the things that it, it goes into a lot more detail about the different environments and you get a lot more charts, which is so first edition. And, 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 you can, if you were to apply everything in the book, really bog down the game. So, yeah, this is definitely more for someone who's played a few sessions, at least, if not been playing for a while, and wanted to just expand their game. But, right. yeah, definitely not for a beginner. But I think the best part of the book is what we'll be talking about in the next section is, you know, the the specific... Stuff about the Underdark. I think this is where this book shines. It really gives some good ideas. Well, let's transition to that since Nick uh, gave us a little hint there. (laughs) Because I think we're all, we're like, eh, speeding play, let's speed around through that. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just kind of useless that they stuck it in there. I guess maybe they were trying to fill a page, but this this book, like the other book that we talked about, is probably just as brand new on the shelf as (laughs) any orange spine that I have. So, uh, Creature Feature next. That is not dead, not can eternal life, and with strange ears, even death may die. I welcome the unwary to the Creature Feature Theater. Okay, Creature Feature this week, uh, again, kind of going with our theme of the Dungeoneer Survival Guide is the cultures of the underdark and this is page 73 of that book the uh, dungeoneer survival guide and this section i think where where this is i believe in the dm section of the book yes is where i think if there's anything that you can get mined out of this book is a really good section i this love is the a really picture. good gem here I mean, it really can give some um, some great ideas to the DM about some of these societies of how they are in the Underdark. And just give a brief overview. The, the ones that are covered are the Drow, mm-hmm. the Kuotoa, the Dugar, Mind Flayers, mm-hmm. Abilith. Darrow and Cloakers, which I thought was kind of weird, at having Cloakers. I didn't think of much of having a society. But um, it talks about the drow, or the drow, I should say, and um, how their their world is structured. Now, 
keep in mind, this was written in 1986, okay? Mm-hmm. This is before, if I recall, this is before the Salvatore books, okay? Right, yes. This is before, this is before Drizzt made his appearance on the, on the world. Before the Icewind Dale so, stuff? Yeah, before Icewind Dale. That, I think at least a couple of years before that. Um, talks about drow society, how it's matriarchal, um, drow worship Lolth, drow six level or higher have to go through a, a trial by fire. Basically they pass. That's fine. If not, they become driders. Um, drows emulate spider characteristics in other ways. Buildings tend to have like web patterns and networks, uh, Traps in the structures are rather common. Um, it, now, this one I found rather interesting. In times of severe population pressure, the drow practice cannibalism, weeding out the weaker members of the community. The victims are always the aged, since the safety of the young is very important to the drow. I found that rather interesting. Hmm. Cannibalize their own people. Yeah. Yeah. I I uh, think that's something that kind of got overshadowed later on, if I recall. I don't know if that was really brought up in any of the literature later on. There uh, is actually a Dragon magazine for one of the later editions that actually goes deep into the uh, culture and society of the drow, and it talks about the rituals of and uh, the cannibalism, among other things. That, hmm. I can't remember what issue that is, but yeah, they, they did touch on it in some of the Dragon article li- later on. But I like uh, this section about the drow. It talks about their culture and uh, trade. They'll they'll make alliances, but they'll quickly break alliances at the drop of a hat, basically, if they feel like they're cheated or slighted in any way. <laughs> Long-term objectives is to completely rule the subterranean races and the Underdark. So that's pretty much drow in a nutshell. Kuotoa, I thought was really cool, this section. I think this... What they're, according to this book, the Kuotoa is a race and society that is on its it's dying out basically. Mm-hmm. Their society is dying out. Their communities are slowly dwindling. Um, they worship the Sea Mother. The if I know what the original name is, but I cannot pronounce it. <laughs> uh. They also talk about, um, you know, the dramatic decline of the Kuotoan race has resulted in a very high incidence of insanity amongst Kuotoans. Many as 5% of, of the menfish go berserk at the slightest propagation. This has led to the development of the monitor class of elite Kuotoas that watch over the rest of the Kuotoan tribes. Uh, I thought that was interesting that they're like a a race that is on on its way out, that they are slowly dying out and dwindling. The dying race, yeah, like a dying race, yeah. And really, um, the Kuotoa is, I I think, kind of a analog for the deep ones out of from like Call of Cthulhu and H.P. Lovecraft lore. You think so? So, I kind of do. That's kind of the vibe I get out of the Kuotoa. In a way, they're they're you know they're fishy, ugly fishmen. 
So, <laughs> um, but that's the the brief blurb on the Kuotoa, the the, the Durgar, the Gray Dwarves. Very interesting section there. Uh, actually, they. Uh, there's really nothing really big about them. I mean, no, not really. Um, they say they're formidable in battle. Uh, they have no real major ambitions of conquest or domination, but they fight fiercely and savagely for both pre- for both to preserve the, what they have and to gain control of any portions. Basically, the the Duergar are just like we're going to survive. That's it. We're not. We don't have any plans of conquest or whatever. We're just going to survive. We're going to yeah. do what we can to get by here in the Underdark. Now the mind flayers, uh, I like, and I thought it was very interesting that they uh, kind of pair them with the Abolith. Um, that there's some sort of relationship between the two. If anything, there's they don't admire each other, but they have a they acknowledge each other's existence and they will work with each other if they have to. Um, but their goal, the Mind Flayers, if I... Let's see if I can find it here. The Mind Flayers, as a race, do have a goal and their leaders devote much effort toward finding a way to achieve it because they loathe the light of the day and hate being limited to confining chambers of the Underdark. The Mind Flayers' quest to destroy that which... Bars them from the surface world. They seek to douse the fires of the sun itself. Mm. They want to destroy the sun. Are they a James Bond villain? I don't know. No, they're not. No, they're not. (laughs) See, I thought that was interesting. I don't remember that from reading that before. I'm like, oh my god, I totally forgot about that. They want to destroy the sun. Hmm. See, because I always thought, like, my idea of the Mind Flayers... I always thought they were like an alien race from another prime material plane. And they evolved in a whole different way. And they somehow got to this prime material plane of the game world. And, uh, you know, they decided just, you know, for conquest, try to take over everything. Yeah. And destroy the sun is a pretty good premise for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but if you don't, well, if you don't use psionics in your game, this monster's worthless, kind of. Uh, yeah. But the Mind Blast from the Mind Flare does work on non-psionic creatures, and there are rules for that. Uh, in fact, there's a really good article in Dragon Magazine, The Ecology of the Mind Flare. And I'm trying to remember which issue it is. I want to say issue 63. I might be wrong on that. Or 83. But uh, I remember the cover. But I'm going to have to look it up. Se- issue a... 78. 78. It's got a funky cover on it, don't it? Yeah. It's like a flying lizard, right? Yeah. Yes. One of the best ecology articles ever written in Dragon Magazine, in my opinion. Because the ecology in a Mind Flayer, it was written in the point of view of one of the Githyanki. Hmm. Because the Githyanki were once slaves to the Mind Flayers. So, uh, they also talk about the Abilith, um, basically how they're like 
they they almost sound like they're like the job of the hut. They're like the huts of the uh, Underdark. <laughs> um, the Darrow. Um, there's not much on them. Uh, but they do talk about like every 20 years or so, the Darrow unite the race for like vicious wars and plunder and cloakers. I'm like, really? Cloakers having a, a society? I thought they were just some other weird monster. Out of the couple of pages, though, there I think there's some really good ideas for a DM to start with if you want to do like a whole just an underdark campaign. Was there an underdark campaign that came out later on? Yes, yeah, there was a night below. Yeah. Night below. Oh, that was for second edition, right? Yes. Yeah, I thought so. And it's very, 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 very railroady. Oh, really? Okay. You could see the train tracks from a mile up in the sky. <laughs> okay. Interesting way of putting it. Uh, yeah. I just, I thought it was very railroady. I remember reading through it again, I'm like, uh, really? They have to do this? They have to? These was it, exact things have to happen. Uh, was it as railroady as some people say uh, Rahasia was? I don't know. No, you don't know. I don't know. Okay, so I'm not familiar with that adventure. All right. Sorry, but I do have Night Below. I thought it was a really cool idea. And I reread it. I'm like, oh. Well, I think the Underdark Boy. is a good place for a campaign. I hear a lot of oh, people yeah. saying Underdark campaign, Underdark campaign, but I've never actually seen. Anything written for... I think maybe 3rd edition had something for Underdark. I've written something. <gasps> you I've have. actually written a campaign setting with my friend Jeff. Where is it? Campaign setting for the Underdark, or whatever you might want to call by it. By Black... I mean, Nick? <laughs> no, it was my, my, my friend Jeff and myself a few years ago. We were going to we were gonna uh, create a book for, for Hackmaster at the time. Because they did that book, that City of Brass, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really cool idea. And I thought, oh, why don't we do one on the Underdark? And we worked on it for a while. We we had some pretty good stuff in there. Never got published because we never got around, you know, getting everything that we wanted done. And, you know, real life tends to rear its ugly head. Do you still so, have it? <laughs> I do. I still have the information. In fact... I'm going to see if I can, you know, if, with my friend's yeah. permission, of course, if we can put it out there. Send me a copy of that. I'd like to take a look through that. Yeah. Yeah. We came up with some really good ideas for like a huge, ginormous city in the Underdark and all these different races intermingling in this one city. I don't want to give away too much, but I'm going to see if we can, um, if I could put it out there sometime. I might want to start tweaking it around again this fall. We'll see what happens. Why don't you like tweak it around for uh, say Osric or something? That way you can have you it. Do that. You can have it published. I can. Yeah, I never really thought of that. Yeah, definitely for Osric, that'd be easy. Or Sword and Wizardry, for that matter, if you want to go back that far in rules. I'd probably do it for Osric. That would yeah. be. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. Mm-hmm. I know, I know that I, I, I'm sure Stuart Marshall will probably help you out with that because I'm sure he's looking for uh, a campaign setting for Osric. I don't think there actually is one for Osric right now. Yeah, we have, gosh, if I remember, we have at least 50 pages of material right now. That's a good start. Yeah. yeah. Actually, for would, a campaign setting book, that's probably about right. Yeah, we got about 50 pages and 
Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, I think I'm going to start looking through that again. I, we had some really great ideas of how all the different races in this one city interacted with each other, and each had a specific role, and who rules over what, and um, had some other cool ideas. It's a, yeah, it's a campaign setting. Nothing. We wanted to make it to where it's broad enough that a DM can tweak it out as much as he can to his own specific needs, but there are maybe some specific locations in the city that, you know, you can work with. I I kind of, in my mind, I was kind of keeping that City of Brass book in my mind, but also the original World of Greyhawk campaign mm, setting book. Yeah, okay. Now, it just had enough information for a DM to spark his imagination, you know, but it didn't leave him, like, wanting for more, really. Hmm. So... Yeah, I'll see what I could do. Maybe uh, hopefully pique some interest amongst our listeners too. Might light a fire under my keister then and actually get it out there. Yeah, <laughs> you can always stop if by. There's anyth- if there's anything I'm famous for in the world, it's procrastination. There so. you go. <laughs> hey, and I tell you, it's not easy writing something up. I mean, I'm in the middle of writing something up, and I can't do the layout right now. So I'm just sitting there. I'm going, uh, duh, in design, ha who? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean. Yeah. Yeah, designing a whole, like, different game, that I couldn't do. I could maybe design something within a game mechanics way, but, you know, I think designing my own game itself would be really difficult. I don't think, like I I said before, I don't think I can really do something like that. But, you know what, I'm going to start looking through that stuff again. It's high time. It's been a while, and um, I might have some ideas. I might want to throw in there again some stuff that's been rattling around in my brain. Yeah, get 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 Blackstone on the phone and see what he has to say. <laughs> see what he has to say. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll get him. I'll get him on the uh, crystal ball. See what happens. You know. There you go. All right, cool. I I like the Underdark. I've always liked the Underdark. I can always imagine a city underground where the players start, and their whole culture is under the dark. I mean, under yeah. the city, and you can't go. Wasn't there a movie based on that too? You couldn't go on the top land because it was like polluted, but it really wasn't in the sense. Oh, like, it's kind of like a Savage Worlds type thing. Yeah, kind of. You know, the movie A Boy and His Dog, A Boy and His Dog, was like kind of like that. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. But I could see a whole society under dark like that, and you can't go on the top land because it's filled with all these deadly creatures or deadly air, and then you know, players can venture out and explore and a whole new world. And oh, yeah. that's an interesting twist. I never thought of that. Yeah. So let's throw it out to people out there and see what they have to say. Sure. RFISTAFF at gmail.com. And uh, we'll head into Dragon Sword. As the secret portal yields to your efforts, you stand amazed at a vision from the most fevered dreams of avarice. Before you lies the Dragon's Hall. And now we will dip into the Dragon's Horde, and this week we'll be talking about the Talisman of the Sphere. I couldn't find this one. Where is it? (laughs) DMG, page 155. Really? Yeah, it's in the Artifacts and Relics section under (laughs) Miscellaneous Magic. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, this is just a small loop and handle which will be useless to any but a Magic user. And any other class touching it will take uh, 5 to 30 hit points of damage. Ow! Yeah. 
and but when held by a magic user concentrating or trying to control a sphere of annihilation, it doubles the intelligence bonus percentage for controlling it. Wow. So 2% per point of intelligence 13 through 15, 6% per point of intelligence 16 through 18. If control is established by the wielder of the talisman, he or she needs to check for continual control every other round thereafter. If control is not established, the fear sphere moves towards the magic user at a maximum speed of 16 feet around. Uh, wand of negation will have no effect on the sphere of annihilation, but a wand directed at the talisman will na- negate the power of control so long as the wand is directed at it. So, so basically the talisman of the sphere is like a joystick. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's your NES advantage for a uh, sphere of annihilation. So, sphere of annihilation. So, what do you guys think? Is this something you would actually throw in your campaign? Well, not a, well, the talisman of the sphere to control the sphere of annihilation. Is it something you'd actually use or not? Yes. Well, oh yeah. It's well, if you do have a sphere of annihilation in your campaign, most assuredly, yes, you would. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so really it comes down to, are you using a sphere of annihilation? Because if you throw this in without having one, it's kind of pointless unless you really just want to mess with the non-magic user players. Yes. Oh, did I say that? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't there also bad things that happen when you, like, put a sphere of annihilation and a portable hole together? I don't know, Nick. What would happen? Total protonic reversal. Is that like mixing Coke and Pepsi in the same bottle? Yeah, pretty much. The hmm. world will end. You know, I actually had a friend. <laughs> getting you did? Off. I, I got a friend who did this, and it was the funniest thing. Mixed Coke and Pepsi together? Yeah, we were working. We were at work one night, back way back when I used to work at the casino. And it was late night, and my friend had a Pepsi. And it was almost gone. So at the casino, they served Coke to everybody. So he took his Coke and poured it into the bottle of the Pepsi. And my friend who was next to me went, oh, my God, and he dove behind the bench. Like, literally <laughs> dove behind the bench and was hiding in fear. I'm like, dude, what's the matter with you? He goes, he just, he just put Pepsi and Coke together. That's total annihilation. I'm like, dude, we're not dead. No, and it just turns into RC cola. Yeah, he just looked around just, and went, oh, okay. <laughs> it's like c- crossing the streams from Ghostbusters. That's what I said. It's like, imagine every uh, atom in your body Exploding at the speed of light. Total protonic reversal. Or putting, so a, bad. putting a Mentos in Diet Coke. <laughs> Pop rocks and Coke. Yeah, nah. all those fun things. So is there any way we can you know, do anything for this talisman to make it different? Hmm. I don't think so. No. no, not really. I mean, it, it serves its purpose. It's the joystick for the sphere. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And a rather quirky joystick, so it's like the old Atari twenty six hundred joystick. Right. I think Matt's NES Advantage stick sounded perfect for it. Yeah, yeah. So it gives you, yeah, it, it gives you that little bit more control over that sphere of annihilation. But every now and then, it just doesn't quite register your move. That's what happens when you use analog controls over digital. Not very accurate. Yeah. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Yeah. Is it a plot killer? No. Is is it too powerful? Probably not. The no, especially the killer. Yeah, <laughs> right. But I mean, considering when you look at the probability of actually even being able to control it in ge- any way, you're going to be high enough level that you still have a chance for it to not do what you want, even with yeah. the doubling. 
So, yeah, it's not going to break anything. How about... Um, and, and, and the fact that it has the potential to actually bring the Sphere of Annihilation towards them, I think, balances it quite nicely. How about, like, if it runs out of... Put charges on it, how it runs out of charges. Would that make it more interesting, you think? Yeah, that I could see that. Interesting, oh yeah. Oh well, yeah. The, the NES yeah. Advantage always ran out of power anyway, so... <laughs> right. Every right in the middle of a game, you'd lose it, so... Oh no, Oh, almost there, almost there! It's not working anymore! Ah, it's rolling back at us! Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's just mean. <laughs> I don't think I've kind of... I, I just go along with this... Since it, it works in conjunction with the Sphere of Annihilation, have you, any of you guys been in a game where one of those items actually showed up? No. Because I have. I, you, really? Tell us what happened. Because I've never been in one. No, I haven't. Oh, okay. No. No, yeah, I, I, I can't say I have because that's just one of the items in the book where you're like, it's almost a cursed item in a way. <laughs> right. Essentially, yeah. It's like it really cool what it does, but it could come back and destroy you. Mm, I don't know. I'd really like to see someone send in some stuff about this. Definitely, how the, how yeah. it worked in their campaign. I'd definitely like to see some uh, made up magical items. I haven't seen too many of those for first edition. I don't know why, but yeah, I just thought of something. What if you had dueling magic users using the talisman of the sphere to control a sphere of annihilation? So they're like pushing it back and forth at each other. <laughs> oh, like it, like a, like a the ultimate game of pong. Yeah. Yes. Pong, pong with life pong. or death pong. Oh my gosh, I could see it. I could see it. I could see it. Yes. That'd be awesome. All right. Well, I guess that's going to put an end to the show this week. It is. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Next week, we'll be back with another show. So it's going to end issue number 60. So I'm going to say keep it original, keep it old school. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Roll for initiative.